Tim Naftali is a historian who studies leaders, power, and international affairs. In 2006, he joined the National Archives to become the first director of the Federal Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Museum. Currently, he is a senior fellow at the New America Foundation and is the author of a forthcoming book on the Kennedy presidency. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Tim Naftali. Hi. Thanks, Gregory. Welcome to all of you and to insomniacs throughout the United States. Uh, I have a, I, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Jeff Frank. Um, Jeff Frank uh, is a, an accomplished writer. Um, those of you who uh, buy the book today uh, will be blessed in reading the, the prose. Jeff spent uh, 13 years at the Washington Post. I'm not sure that's where you learn how to write well, but that's certainly where you learn how to get a good story. And by the end, he was running the Outlook section. And then he went to the New Yorker and was a senior editor there for nearly 13 years. And that is a place where you learn to write well and help others write well. Besides writing nonfiction, uh, Jeff has written three, four, I guess, four um, works of fiction. So this is someone who understands the importance of narrative and of a good story. And he brought those talents, for some reason, to the relationship between Eisenhower and Nixon. And I want to begin by asking you, Jeff, yeah. why, why did you choose that particular marriage it, because to it was, be the focus of this Because book? it really was a great story. Here's, here, it, it began with two people who really didn't know each other. One of them was, the, was an American hero of the sort we don't have anymore, a five-star general. There are no more five-star generals. The man who was given credit for leading the Allies to victory in Europe, 62 years old, and a 39-year-old Orange County congressman uh, who were ran together. Eisenhower ran with Nixon, but he didn't even really choose him as vice president. He, he wasn't even aware that a presidential candidate gets to choose his vice president. And so he later was asked by James Reston of the New York Times, how, what really happened the night when Nixon was chosen? And Eisenhower said, well, you know, there, I had my advisors and there were six or seven people on the list and Nixon was on the list. And so they got together and they, they, they had a very strained relationship that went on and on during Eisenhower's presidency. It became closer when in the post, which Nixon, what Nixon calls his wilderness years and Eisenhower's post-presidency. And then around 1966, Eisenhower's grandson, David, who was going to Amherst, began to date Julie Nixon, who was going to Smith seven miles away, and they completely were crazy about each other. A year later, uh, that was, they were 19 years old, a year later when they were 20, uh, they, were, uh, uh, they were married. And, uh, and, so the, and they became one family in, the, in, in November of 1968. They had Thanksgiving together, the Nixons and the Eisenhowers, and Julie's, uh, Julie Nixon's firstborn was an Eisenhower. And I thought that was just a great story from beginning to end. That's what, that's what drew me to it. Now, the topic of tonight's discussion is rethinking Nixon. It is. Did this experience of writing about this relationship cause you to rethink Nixon? I thought about Nixon a lot. I saw Nixon, uh, I'm not sure that I ever really, I'm not sure that I really rethought him because I wasn't doing the Nixon presidency. I was doing, even though I do have an epilogue which deals with what, what came after, what came after, but I really only deal in the book with three months or two months of the Nixon presidency, which began when he was inaugurated and two, two months later, Eisenhower was dead. And, that's, and, that, and that sort of covers the story. From, from their first meeting, they met at the Bohemian Grove, that exclusive men's club in out north of San Francisco. And it ended up with, uh, with Ike's death in, in 1969. What, a, what kind of, what sense of the man did you get? Of, of Nixon, Nixon, you mean? Yeah. He baffled me, and I found him extremely complicated. I was just, I was just sort of riveted by, his, by, 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 by the sort of different sides of him. Like I was, he could be really vindictive and, 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 and sort of vicious, even, 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 even long before all the tapes that we've all heard. He would refer to, at one time he referred to his... 1960 running mate Henry Cabot Lodge as a, you know, a knuckle-headed, gutless wonder and that sort of thing. And yet, he could be so kind to people I, uh, and so generous in, in ways he didn't have to be. He always had a thing about the Kennedys, but when he was president, um, he, he invited Mrs. Kennedy and her two children to come see him in the White House. And it wasn't just a perfunctory, oh, look around. He spent time with them. They played with the dog. And they wrote him, they all wrote him thank you letters. And then he wrote personal personal thank you letters handwritten back to all to, to the two children that was so touched Mrs. Kennedy that she wrote back to Nixon and said well, it was such a sweet thing. So he had that side of him. 
on, uh, and then he had this other side, and he just he completely baffled me. What really struck me in reading your book is is that how mean uh, Dwight Eisenhower was to Richard Nixon. Yeah, I what what interesting. <laughs> I mean, he, it, I mean, it's amazingly. It's amazing how mean. I mean, you, he, can, you should give some examples of... Well, I think, um, um, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it, Eisenhower wasn't even aware of it. I think Eisenhower regarded almost everyone who worked for him as staff. And, and here, Nixon was a lieutenant uh, commander in the Navy, and there again, Eisenhower was, uh, was a five-star general. I mean, to try to, I try to get a sense of that today, we don't, as I say, we don't have any. We have four stars, and like, like, uh, like, like David Petraeus. But it's, it's the difference sort of between between sort of leading the Allied Expeditionary Force in the invasion of Normandy or running the surge in Iraq. It's just, a, there was a whole different in magnitude of what these, what these men were. And, and Eisenhower, again, Eisenhower was so big, both parties wanted him to run. Jimmy Roosevelt, FDR's son, wanted him to run as a Democrat. There was even some talk of, well, he could run with both parties and then they would have different vice presidents with, with them. I mean, they, 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 they he was he was beloved, and so and so I, so and so in a sense, Eisenhower was almost oblivious in some ways to 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 what to, to his effect on people. And yet, I think there was there was a, in some cases some deliberate cruelty. And I think and it, it started off in a very bad way. I'm, I'm sure you all know the story of the the uh, the fund crisis, which 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 began with this with this um, story in the New York Post saying that Nixon was supported by by a group of millionaires, a secret group of millionaires, and and there was a lot of pressure to get Nixon off the ticket. And Eisenhower, in fact, wanted him off the ticket. And, you know, I, and the long story short, Nixon went on television, explained himself, so to speak, re revealed all of his finances, talked about a dog named Checkers that he wasn't going to give back, and defied Eisenhower's order to resign. Um, he said, uh, write to the Republican National Committee, basically circumventing Eisenhower's right to remove him from the ticket, and he won. And, but from that moment on, things were never, in some way, things were never the same, even though, even though they did become closer and they worked together. Um, Eisenhower... Um, what Eisenhower did to him, Nixon later wrote, was a scar that never healed. And Julie, Julie Nixon, in, in her book about her mother, said that every September 23rd, which was the anniversary of the Checkers speech, her father would say, do you know what day this is? This is, this is? this is the anniversary of that speech. And he never forgot. Okay. So, and there were, there were many, I mean, many, many episodes of cruelty. He tried to get him off the ticket in 56. Nixon fought back. He would do things, he would, he would do things like, not even really sort of, Kerry, when Nixon was finally getting a vacation in the summer, in the summer of 58, he was off with his family and, it, and all of them, they were off in West Virginia. I saw pics of the fuzzes. Dick, I want you to come back to Washington and fire Sherman Adams. I mean, there was just, it was never, there was never any, any, any rest from him. He was, he, was not, he was not a really kind boss and he really, he wanted his own way. But I say, I don't, some of it was just sort of casual, sort of casual indifference to the feelings of other people. Um, we're seeing, I mean, tonight, those, for some reason, all of you decided not to watch the State of the Union. Um, but somebody in the country, some, some people are watching the State of the Union, and, and, and we're watching now, of course, a, a, um, a dialogue between a, um, a resurgent, re-elected re president and a divided Republican Party. Um, you wrote about a quite a different Republican party. It was a different party. Um, the, uh, the, there were sort of, there were, there were outlaws, well, of course, the party was totally different. It was in, in, when, Nixon, when Nixon was, and Eisenhower were there, it was the Civil Rights Party. It really was the party of Lincoln. The, and the, the Democrats were- Jackie were, Robinson. Jackie, Jackie Robinson was, supported Nixon. So did, and, and so did, uh, and Martin Luther King was a sort of, was a big Nixon supporter until, until, until they had a, so a, a bad moment in 1960, 1960. when Nixon when Nixon didn't come to, didn't come to his to his aid, no, and and Nixon and the Eisenhower administration and Nixon with Nixon working the working in the Senate sort of lobbied for a stronger version of the 1957 Civil Rights Bill, which was considered a landmark bill at the time, and and uh, so they were they were very different parties, and the, and the two wings of the Republican Party there, were, there was a liberal there was a liberal wing and a, and a conservative wing, so to speak, but the liberal but the conservative wing were people like Robert Taft. Um, who, who he was an isolationist, but he supported uh, old age, old age pensions. He was he had a real social, social conscience and so on. There were there were outliers. There was a man named Ezra Jenner who thought that an invisible UN government had taken over the country, and there was Senator McCarthy. But they were outliers. They weren't they weren't they weren't they didn't speak for the party. And uh, and in fact, Eisen, though Eisenhower was very reluctant to ever take anybody on directly, he he thought he really did want to get get get, get McCarthy sort of excised from the from the party, and he and he put Nixon up to it. One of, the, one of the challenges for someone writing about Richard Nixon, I think, I'd like to know if you share this view, is that we have 
an ocean of information about him as president, largely because he decided to leave it. For himself, he didn't expect the public to have access to it. And we don't have as much about him as vice president. And, we, and, and how, how easy or hard was it for you to get to the inner Nixon when you wrote about him in the 50s? Well, it's interesting. I mean, t I, mean th I'll, th I give a lot of credit to, to, to Timothy, who was the director of the Nixon, Nixon Library. A lot of stuff was open. And you could go down there and, and you could go through this, you could go, through, go in the archives and find, and, and the more time you spent, the sort of more things you would discover. I began to sort of be fascinated by, by the notes that Nixon wrote on these, on the famous yellow pads, and he would write down, his, he would write down almost, he, he, was like a, he was like an A student. Everything he, he did and saw, he would take notes. When he made a, Eisenhower did him the big favor in the fall of 53 of sending him basically all, all through Asia, and he was, you could just see his notes. He, in Vietnam, he met, the, he met the emperor about die, and then he, he basically said, basically the only ones who could run, commies can run country. He saw, he saw the future in a way. He, he didn't like it. He was a cold warrior, but he, but he, but he could see it. And, 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 and you could see Nixon reflecting on, uh, reflecting and, and being, one time being resentful when, when, when he saw that Eisenhower was really trying to get rid of him in 1956. He was writing down things else, you know, it's, it's, it's the president's choice I, for the good of the party. He was basically writing his sort of his own his own sort of death speech when he and so on. It never he never said it, but you could so you could find all these things, and it, it's all there. But you've got to keep looking. But the other thing that's so important, and Tim can talk about this, is there was a brief, there was a there was a barrier between between the Nixon Library, which is run by the National Archives, and the Nixon Foundation, which was a far more celebratory part and, and I had to work with them too and they were terrific to me they were they they were they they decided they were going to trust me to be fair and I hope I was fair and they put me in touch with one person in particular I was talking to Tim about it earlier a woman named Marge Acker who was the who was the assistant to Rosemary Woods who had been Nixon's Nixon's secretary for, since he was in Congress and Marge Acker was basically with him from all that time too she was with him when, when the when the fund crisis that we spoke about came in the news and Nixon was under great pressure, he was on a train going from Northern California to Oregon and Marge Acker was there and she could talk about what it was like. She could talk about what it was like when they flew to Wheeling to meet General Eisenhower. So things like that were really important from the foundation side and they were, and they were really, really, really good. And then, and, say, and the library was, the library while Tim was there was ter terrific. They were all open, they were very helpful, all of them. They were, they were all professional archivists too and that was, that the sort of high standard was met. So, but, but you've got to, I think I made, I couldn't remember Remember, finally, I was telling him I think eight or nine trips to Yorba Belinda, and I, I, I sort of enough for the Olive Garden, but it, but it was uh, but I spent, I spent a lot of time there. Other places other than no, there Olive were they were they were. Uh, well, I mean, actually, you, there was a very good sandwich shop about it. A very good <laughs> Stefano's is a very good sandwich. Very shop. Good. I spent it's, a lot of time there. It's a 15, 15 minute walk um, down, down well, the, well, the for a for a, a celebrant of Richard Nixon's career, um, historians are problematic. And you did a very, very good job of navigating the, the shoals and talking to everybody. I, I noticed in the book you interviewed a number of folks who uh, would, have been you know, would have been interviewed by the library in the first year or two, but after a while decided they didn't really want to talk to us. Uh, but they talked to you, and that's what's important. Um, I would have to say uh, that standing back, the... The darker side of Richard Nixon that we, we know from the tapes, do you see hints of that in the 50s, or are you among those who believes that there was a change, that, that, that this, poor, this man actually was traumatized? I've thought about that a lot, and I think I'm one of those who believe there was a change. And I, I, don't, I don't know what it, where it dates from, but I think it probably dates, uh, for, what, it probably dates from the very beginning of his relationship with Eisenhower. I think he was... I think he was under constant strain, he was, uh, constant insecurity. I think he was very much like any employee hired by a sort of really top-level corporation and really doesn't know whether, he, he has, whether his job is safe. It wasn't until 19, the 1956 election when Nixon realized he had what you could call tenure. There was nothing, nothing to be done, except there was still, Eisenhower still had, had a thumb on him because Eisenhower needed Eisenhower's support if he was going to be running for president. And after Eisenhower's heart attack, in 1955, which we could, we could talk about or, or not, but it, for the first time, people began to talk about Nixon as an heir to the presidency. This wasn't, this was unusual. People, people vice presidents were not considered heirs to the presidency. No one, no one thought of, 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 of John Nance Garner or, or, or even Harry Truman as an heir to the president. Roosevelt didn't think of Truman as an heir to the presidency. He didn't, he didn't tell him anything. The vice president, for yeah. example, didn't have an office in the White House yeah. in that era. Yeah, he still didn't in the Nixon, Nixon era. But Eisenhower did Nixon the great favor 
of, of really trying to keep him, keep him, keep him informed. He, brought, he, brought up, he, he, he attended cabinet meetings. Uh, he ran, and when Eisenhower wasn't there, he ran them. He was the same thing with the National Security Council. And, he, and Eisenhower sent him abroad on, on, on trips and uh, all, all through Asia in 1957. After, and Nixon became very close to Secretary of State John Foster Dulles after Eisenhower's heart attack. And, uh, and, and, um, and Dulles suggested that Nixon should visit, visit Africa when the, when, when the Gold Coast got its independence. So there were lots of things that Eisenhower did to sort of try to get Nixon up to speed. So, as he said, I, I don't want someone who's just going to bang a gavel in the Senate. So... Uh, so, you, so you, you think, though, that, that but, this experience, but, so, yeah, yeah. because there are people who will argue that, that it was the experience, the searing experience of losing such a close election to John F. Kennedy in 1960 yeah. that, that was the trauma. I think, you're, I think, you're, yeah. you're laying the foundation for an argument that it's Ike's fault. No, 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 no. I think <laughs> Ike, is, I, Ike was a father figure, and he couldn't. Please, his father figure. Well, I'm not going to. I'm not going to get into psychoanalysis. Everyone oh, else. But it's every, so much fun. Everyone. Everyone else does. Starting with fun. Well, and leaving with fun. I don't think. Even, I don't think but, Richard Nixon painted himself in the bathroom. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I just. We were talking about that. Everyone saw Marine Dow's wonderful line that we thought he was under the influence of Dick Cheney, but it was in fact Lucian Freud. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, um, uh, Nixon, but yes, I agree with Tim. Nick, I think that the 1960 election was hugely traumatic on all kinds, of, all kinds of levels. One, I think Nixon, who had always regarded Kennedy as a friend, he liked Kennedy. Um, I, I, one of the things that really I, I found um, after Nixon's nastiest campaign, the, his California race against Helen Gahagan Douglas, um, which, 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 which sort of the Democrats forever turn against him. But shortly after that, Kennedy spoke to some kids at Harvard and said, you know, I'm really glad that, I'm really glad that Mrs. Douglas lost. I, I wouldn't have wanted to work with her in the Senate. And, uh, but but uh, so they were friendly. Nixon supported uh, Kennedy's membership application to the Burning Tree Country Club. Uh, the, the, the Kennedys, Jackie and Jack and Jackie, invited the Nixons to, to their wedding. When, when Jack Kennedy was laid up with a bad back injury, um, uh, Nixon sort of helped in the reorganization of the Senate, protected them. And Mrs. Kennedy wrote to him and said, thank you, Jack thinks you're one of the most wonderful people. So they were, they had, they were, they, if I won't call them friends, they were politicians who, they, who they're not, no one's really friends in this, in this business. Well, well but, Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan must have been friends. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, they were, but they were friendly. They were friendly, they were colleagues, they were this roughly the same age. And suddenly Kennedy was really playing rough. They, he had no, nothing was held back. And he, and, and, and he felt he was really being roughed up by the Kennedys. They were saying terrible things about him. They, they, there was a really rough campaign. And furthermore, he thought, he thought when, he, when it was all over, he thought it had been stolen. He thought he actually won it. And who, people still are arguing about that. If he'd, I mean, don't forget, if, he'd, if he had won Illinois and Texas, Lyndon Johnson and, and, and Mayor Daley, he would have, he would have won. So it was a, and he felt, he always felt, he always felt that, that he was, that he was really, that he really, he really got royally, royally stiffed in that election. Um, there was a renaissance of uh, interest in Richard Nixon, and I caught some of this when I was at the, at the library, uh, because of George W. Bush, because of people were looking back to Richard Nixon and saying, you could have a good government Republican. You could have a, government, uh, a Republican who actually wanted the government to be efficient. It didn't necessarily have to grow, although under Nixon it did grow to some extent. Um, but the, 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 it, the, the Republican Party is so different now, this was the argument, because there's no room for good government Republicans like Nixon. And so there was much more interest in Richard Nixon's domestic agenda. Everybody had been interested, obviously, in, in the foreign policy side, with the opening to China and the end of the war in Vietnam. But in the, I noticed this in the, in the second term of the Bush administration, there was more interest in Richard Nixon's domestic uh, policies. That's a, it's a real problem for historians because on the tapes, Richard Nixon is not always very happy about his domestic policies. I was wondering, since you were back and looking at the Ur period for Richard Nixon, um, where would you put him vis-a-vis -vis the New Deal in the 1950s? Is he, it, it, would you say he's, he's interested in a continuation of the New Deal? Has he begun to doubt the New Deal? What role does he see government playing in society in the I don't, 1950s? Yeah, I think he certainly had no desire to, un, to undo the New Deal. He was, even as a congressman, he was sort of very, very much aware and in favor of some sort of catastrophic health plan. Don't forget Nixon, when Nixon was growing up, I mean, his family wasn't poor, but he had, but he had two brothers who died, who died of tuberculosis, so there wasn't very good health care. Um, one, one brother was seven years old, and I think he was seven, and then Harold, his older brother, died when he was 25. Um, 
And so he was, um, and he, he, so he was very much, um, he was an internationalist when he was a congressman. A lot of, in spite of the isolationist wing of his party, Nixon was a big supporter of the Marshall Plan and voted for, and voted for it. And, and, uh, and as president, as, as Tim was saying, yeah, he was his, a lot of his domestic, um, even if he didn't love some of them, he certainly supported them. He, the, the Environmental Protection Agency began, began under Nixon. He brought in, he brought in Pat Moynihan uh, to, to try to promoting this idea of a negative income tax and so on. And he, even though Nixon backed away from it, it said it's certain certain standards were set about 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 the welfare system in this country that you have to give Nixon Nixon credit for. Other things too, the Philadelphia hiring plan for minorities and so on. So that was, so he was a, he was a pretty good domestic president. I, 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 I talked to a guy named Paul Musgrave who was who worked with Tim at the, at the library, and he sort of said, you know, the first first three or four months of the Nixon presidency were like a golden age. If you go back and look at it again, it was kind of amazing. All this stuff was going on and new policies, new ideas, and Nixon, and Nixon was interested. Nixon, if you read some of the New Republic pieces, John Osborne, who wrote the Nixon Watch, said, Nixon would go to these meetings, these domestic policy meetings, and sit around for hours <laughs> loving it. So that was a whole different side of Nixon. Then, then he stopped it. Then it all stopped, yeah. No, but he stopped it. Yeah, he stopped it. He lost interest in it. But that, that's... Yeah. That's what makes him such a puzzle. Totally, totally puzzle. And I was, um, I'm not suggesting you do this, but I was getting over a cold on the weekend. And I was, I hope you get over a cold, but I was getting over a cold and I was watching on C-SPAN some um, clips from uh, Nixon's State of the Union address. Again, I'm not suggesting that this is a way of becoming healthy, but I did it. And I noticed him talking again and again about the environment mm -hmm. and how proud he was it is achievement in, 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 in cleaning the air and cleaning the water. And he said it, and he was proud of it publicly, and yet, on the tapes, you have him grousing about it not once, not twice, but constantly, identifying environmentalism with liberals, saying that we, we've made a mistake, we shouldn't do this, and if I ever get a choice between jobs and, and, and the environment, I always go with jobs and don't ever forget it and fire people who say that they should go for the environment. It's so hard to understand. On the one hand, he's the, what, what he said publicly, yeah. at least at the State of the Union address, uh, not once, but three times that I listened to, was what you would want and you would actually expect Bill Clinton, if not, if not President Obama, to say. In fact, well, that, but, but privately, he's grousing. Now, do, do you see in the 50s a man who's at war with himself over what he believes? I, didn't, I didn't see that. I mean, one of the most interesting things that I, that I, I got sort of, I kept following this, this thread of Nixon and civil rights. I, I mentioned his trip to Africa in, in 1957, and, uh, and um, um, that's where he met uh, Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King, who was 28 years old at the time, and Nixon was, and, and, um, and they really got along, and Nixon, King had been trying to see Nixon to talk, to sort of lobby for civil rights in, in the administration, and he wanted to get to Eisenhower. And Nixon said, sure, come, come, come see me, and, and he, they, they met in Washington, I mean, in Nixon's office, and they stayed in touch regularly, and King really felt, King, they had a correspondence, King, King was, really admired him. Um, and he was, and he, Nixon had a kind of great sensitivity about this, it seems. Uh, uh, the one black man in Eisenhower's White House was a man named Fred Morrow, and he and he wrote a book called Black Black Man in the White House, and he felt, and he felt he felt completely sort of alienated people people he people he felt he felt prejudiced, but he felt Nixon, Nixon came up to him and said, you know, Fred, I, I don't think it's I don't think you should always be talking about jobs about issues that affect black people. I think that I think you know you should you should you know that that sort of demeans you. And and Morrow really appreciated this sort of sensitivity. It's he's baffling. It's baffling. He, he baffles me in so many so many ways. But the public Nixon was always pretty good. And and I the only thing I can say is and I can't I can't forgive or explain some of those some of those later tapes. But 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 presidents vent. The, the job is terrible. It's horrible. And and they and 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 I mean they have so much pressure on them. And Harry Truman, for example, I mean, I mean, all, I mean we know now he would use, he would use the N-word regularly. He would refer to Jews as kikes. Johnson did the same. And, but there were no tapes going. So we sort of, oh, good old Harry Truman. Well, but, and the, but, but Harry Truman privately was a, was a, didn't sound so great. And a lot of these people did. And you forgive them for it because it's what they do, what they do that counts. As to quote the, the famous John Mitchell, watch what we do, not what we say. And I think I, can, I, I give Nixon a little bit of a pass on some of the stuff, he, some of the grousing he does about, about the liberals who always want more and so on. So that's what... That's well, if you're just grousing about liberals. No, no, um, no. Um, well, well but, but I guess the challenge is it's venting, although, again... It's the president of the United States, after all, and, and uh, the president sets a tone. 
but it's, it's acting on some of the venting. Well, it's actually acting on, on this anger, which is, I think, when you draw the line between the two. Well, to me, the acting on the—I mean, to me, the acting on the anger is 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 Vietnam, Vietnam, and Watergate. They were again we're getting into the to the to the to the end to the to the to the self-destruction of this presidency, which is not my subject, fortunately. But let me ask you: yeah. Were the seeds? I mean, if yeah, he had been absolutely. elected in 1960, yeah. uh, historians say they don't like counterfactuals. We love them. We love if them. We love, love them. them. We absolutely. love them. Absolutely, love them. Absolutely love them. Dinner conversation all the yeah. time. Anyway. If he had been elected in 1960, did this? Who knows? Would we have had a Vietnam War? We wouldn't have had a Kennedy assassination, which was which is we, which we haven't gotten no, over that, yet. That, that would not have happened. No, but but I mean, but I, but, it, but it was it was the it was probably the most I think the most the most traumatic domestic event of the 20th century. We still haven't recovered from it in, in many ways. No, I well, mean, I it, think... Tom Mallon did a review of my book, but what he but he had this, he, he had this interesting counterfactual um, sort of digression, saying, well, what if Eisenhower, when he had his, a stroke in 1957, hadn't recovered? Nixon, then Eisenhower would have been the first president to resign, and then we would have had Nixon at, at age uh, 44 as president. What would he have been like? And uh, we'll, 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 of course, we'll never know, but he wouldn't have been, he wouldn't have been the traumatized, beaten up, Watergate deluge president that we got. Um, I, 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 I'm, yeah. I'm thinking about the counterfactual. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, it was Vietnam. No, I, I was going no, yeah. to say that I, I don't think we would have had the Cuban Missile Crisis because I don't. I, I think Nixon, who had been supportive of the Cuban operation, to the extent it was a, an operation, it actually was really uh, ambiguously, vaguely formed before the election of 1960. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that he would have let the Bay of Pigs go the way it went. And I'm also pretty convinced, that you can make a strong argument at least, that he would have uh, intervened in Laos uh, because he had had a long-standing uh, long interest in Indochina. So I think that U.S. military intervention in Southeast Asia would have started in 1961. Actually, I can tell you exactly when, mm. when, the, when, the, when it all collapsed in about March of 61. So he would have had no Cuban Missile Crisis, but different crises to deal with. And the, and the issue, I think, for students of presidential biography is whatever demons he had in him that come out when he's under pressure because of Vietnam and Watergate in the 1970s, were those demons there so that when he would have been under pressure in Laos in 1961 that they would have come up right then? Because at a certain point, the American public gets tired of war. And a president has to deal with an American public that is tired of war. And you've got to be able to deal with some equanimity. Well, I love counterfactual history. We were just talking about it. And I think the thing you leave out is that Eisenhower would have been alive and pretty vigorous in, 19, in 1960. Eisenhower would have, the, the, Cuban, the, the Cuban invasion, if it had gone forward, would have gone forward the way, it would have gone forward in Eisenhower style, with an overwhelming force, and they would have, they would have succeeded. Eisenhower hated the idea of a, any, any sort of ground war in Asia. I think he would have said, Dick, don't do it. Uh, for the same reasons that he, that he managed to, to, to keep us, out of, keep us out, of, out of any real involvement in Indochina in, 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 in 1954. Eisenhower did, did send money over there and, and some arms, and he probably helped prop up the Diem regime. But whether he would have gone any much further, I don't know. I can't imagine. I can't imagine 550,000 American soldiers fighting a, fighting a gradualist war under, under anyone except Lyndon Johnson. Well, that, I'll agree with you by yeah. then. By, at that point, yeah. yes. But I think 1961 would have played out, I think, quite differently yeah. had uh, Richard Nixon been president. Fortunately. Fortunately, we have the history that we have. We do. Now, we do. You, you think that the Kennedy assassination is a major turning point for Richard Nixon. I do, I do. I, I, I think that the Kennedy assassination, in many ways, was the worst thing that ever happened to Richard Nixon. He had, um, he had had a really, as we, we talked about, a really uh, traumatic loss in 1960. He lost, he ran for governor in 1962 under the, with the urging of Eisenhower, among others. A terrible mistake on his part. And Nixon had, had what a long, detailed memo setting forth the pros and cons, should I run, should I not run. The, the cons clearly won the argument with Nixon, but he, but he was, you could see the temptation, okay, Rockefeller's governor of the biggest state, I could be governor, who, Rockefeller was his chief rival, in 1960, I could be the governor of the second biggest state. Everyone said he couldn't lose, and he lost. He lost pretty. He lost in a big way. But but in many ways, people say it wasn't it wasn't that big a deal for him. Um, he didn't really care. He didn't he didn't really want the job. He didn't care about 
He didn't really care about, about you know, the water supply in Los Angeles. This wasn't the sort of thing, this wasn't his thing. He, 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 he wanted to think about big world, world issues. So, so, he, so and the, the kids he had taken on, the, he had, to his credit, he had taken on the John Birch Society here. Uh, uh, and he had, and, and in the primary, he had defeated a man named Joe Schell, who was not a bircher, but a, but a conservative Republican who would, well, I think it was the, a Rose Bowl hero, and he'd be, beaten him. And his, so his kids, Dixon's kids, Julie and Tricia, were being teased in school by the, by the children of birchers. They were glad to get out of here. And they moved to, they moved to New York in the spring of 63. Dixon got a really good job offer, and uh, a perfect job offer. He, could, he, could, uh, he, he didn't have to practice much law. He could give speeches, and he could be a, he could be a, a name partner bringing in business at, at this firm, this, this Wall Street firm. Nixon, well, it became Nixon Mudge. I forget all, all the names and so on. And he was things were they were happy. They were they were going to musicals. They were they were uh, eating at the best restaurants. Nixon was Nixon was having lunch at the Recess Club with Tom Dewey and all these and all these also rands. They were walking checkers along Fifth Avenue. <laughs> Trisha and Julie were going to the Chapin School in February of '64. Sounds like a Frank Capra it was movie. In fe <laughs> February of Nixon in New York, I could just see it. If Peter Keese wrote this. <laughs> Peter Keese, who really liked Nixon, New York Times reporter, who was very impressed by Nixon's civil rights. He said, "Nixon, Richard Nixon's a happy New Yorker." In in February, <laughs> February '64, Jack Parr's daughter Randy got tickets for Julie and Tricia to see the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan <laughs> Show. This was the and and suddenly. Kennedy is killed, and Nixon's itch started up again. <laughs> that was the end. That was the, he, he wanted to run in 64. He was already meeting with the Republican National Committee chairman, I think the weekend after Kennedy was shot. He already, he could feel it coming in. And, 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 he, and he had told Roscoe Drummond, there was a big columnist for the Herald Tribune, I, I'm not going to run again in 1964. I won't run in 68 or 72. Anyone who thinks I'm going to seek public office again is out of his mind. And he meant it. And Mrs. Nixon, Pat Nixon, was thrilled to be in New York. There was, life could have been, he would have been bored, he would have been restless, he would have felt, he would have been an elder statesman with a party, but he would have had a normal, prosperous, elder statesman life. And then, and then it changed. Uh, but, you know, he, he was in Dallas. He was. Uh, for Pepsi Cola. No, 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 I'm not suggesting that. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, just, just because I'm wearing black doesn't mean I'm going to go into that Thank you, wormhole. Tim. Thank you, Tim. Um, <laughs> but he, give, he gives a press conference in Dallas before the assassination, of course, and he criticizes Kennedy's leadership. He does. Now, that's strange for somebody who's enjoying walking his dog in New York. Oh, he was going to be a big spokesman for the party. He was. He he spoke in. He spoke. He spoke. He spoke in, in Washington, in, and 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 he and he was happy to criticize Kennedy for the for the, for the Bay of Pigs invasion. He was, but he but it wasn't as if he was running for something. He was a he was a he was a good Republican speaking out against the opposition. So, uh, and yeah. he was happy doing that. He would meet with Eisenhower. They would just say, "Well." Eisenhower loathed Kennedy. No, he had contempt for Kennedy as, as, as truly a young whippersnapper who didn't know what he was doing. Um, what effect do you think the 60s had on Nixon? Because, and by the 60s, yeah, you I mean, mean after the... Let's say, let's, let's, let's mark the start of the 60s with the assassination of John F. Kennedy. What do you think the effect of, of Vietnam, our mounting uh, involvement, ultimately 500, to 550,000 troops, and then the anti-war demonstrators. Mm -hmm. What effect do you think that has on his understanding of what it means to be a leader? I think. I mean, I think that's. I mean, that was the third. That was the other thing that really that really affected him. He felt under, from the moment he was inaugurated, he felt un, under siege. He he, uh, um, his um, his his inauguration has never happened before. He was, people were throwing tomatoes and smoke bombs at the car and so on. He was um, the. Uh, and, and then, he's, then when he's president, the, the Pentagon Papers come out, and even though the Pentagon Papers, the this, this so-called secret history of the war, was about, about the war that Lyndon Johnson had gotten us into, Nixon, Nixon felt threatened by it. Uh, Nixon felt it was, it was a breach of, of security and so on. And, and, um, so, and, um, and, and all this, and sort, certainly, certainly the kind of counterculture, he, was, uh, he had no, he, he, didn't, he just didn't get it. He was just like something alien to him, and I don't, so I don't, I don't think it really, some way it didn't affect him. It didn't affect him. I think the, the 1968 Democratic Convention, I, I think he saw it as a great political opportunity, and he used, he used it in its ads, but I don't think, I, he, really didn't, he really didn't have much contact with the, with the counterculture, and his children didn't either. 
Julie and Tricia didn't, didn't uh, they had, David had friends at Amherst who were sort of part of it, but, and they sort of, they, they, they made fun of him, and Julie had friends at, at Smith, but, they, but they, it, was, it was not part of their lives, and, and uh, so it, was, it, came, it sort of hit him like a, like a stun gun, you could almost say, when he was president. He did a good job on laughing, though. <laughs> he was, that laugh he was coached by a guy named Paul Keyes, who, would, who Nixon had met when he was on, on the Jack Parr program. And, uh, and, and, uh, and Keyes was, was sort of an outlier in that world of comedy. He was, he was, a, big, he was a real Republican. He, so there were, you can see the outtakes that Nixon was saying, soccer to me, and finally ended up with soccer to me. And, uh, and it was just a, <laughs> it, he, it might have helped him win the election. It was very close. <laughs> now, one of the things that, that's, again, you... You, you have this period of uh, uh, immense domestic turmoil and foreign turmoil. And it would be natural for a leader to feel besieged, as you, as you said. I'm wondering how much of that he brought with him. And I'm, I'm thinking back to, again, the story you lay out so, so beautifully. He doesn't seem to have a lot of friends in the 1950s. No, his friends were, his, his California friends, the, 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 the drowns, uh, and, uh, and I think Bob and Carol Finch were, were, were very good friends, um, even though Finch was sort of pushed, when, when Finch, came, Finch came to work, work with him, he was, sort of, he was sort of pushed out. But he was sort of a friendless, lonely man in many ways, um, and particularly as president. But I think the key to him, the key to his failure as a president, were two things. He was sort of a combination of having great power, sort of enormous power, which he never had before. And you can sort of see him beginning to exercise it after he's elected. You can see these sort of loony memos he would send out, some addressed to Mrs. Nixon from the president. And, uh, <laughs> and it was just very, very, and you don't know what's, what's coming, coming from. He, would, he, he suggested that someone should commission a book about the most maligned politician in American history, <laughs> or the great comebacks in history, and it was just, where's this coming from? And and so, so you could see, and you could see this side of him. He was sort of this combination of great power and great insecurity, and that's a deadly combination, a really deadly combination. And I think that's what finally brought him down. Uh, something that, that struck me: um, one of the things we did at the library was we we started an oral history program, because the library had been run privately. And the federal government had kept all of President Nixon's papers in Washington. It was one of the outcomes of, Water, of Watergate. And my job was to bring it together and, and have a federally funded and administered library in California with the papers. So we started this oral history project 30 years late. I mean, after all, it's much better when you get people when they're just out of the administration in one sense. In another sense, talking to them years later, they had time to reflect and uh, they were maybe more candid. The really, really older gentleman that I interviewed for the library had been with Richard Nixon in the 50s. And you just mentioned something about him pushing them out. Without ex exception, the men that had been with him in the 50s, he pushed away from him when he got to the White House. And he brought close to him younger people. He enjoyed having younger people around him, but younger people he could mold and shape. Um, and a lot of the trouble that arose was that uh, these younger people were willing to do what he wanted them to do. Yeah, what are the Whereas the older people, and the numbers that we interviewed, wanted, kept saying, no, don't do this. Now, what I'm wondering is why would, he, why would he push away the people from the Eisenhower period who might have been a very healthy and mature influence on him when he becomes president? It's worse than that. He would push away people from, from the early Nixon period. That's, I think that was the saddest, the saddest thing. I talked to a talked to a man named Don Hughes, a general, an Air Force general, wonderful man, who had actually been Nixon's military aide and liked Nixon, liked him enormously. But we talked about it, and he, he resigned before, before the Watergate scandal broke loose. And he said, you know, I mean, things were changing. You couldn't get things, suddenly there were these orders would come down. Why is there no ketchup on the boat? Why is the steak overdone? Where, why did anyone not know, know of the time? directly they'd come from from Haldeman or Haldeman's deputy but it was clearly but it was clearly from Nixon and he felt this horrible atmosphere and they all they all cleared out and these were people the only one who sort of stayed finally at the end was was Rosemary Woods 
I mean, of, 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 this, of this sort of old Nixon hands. So, so they weren't so much Eisenhower people, but they were people who really who knew Nixon, who had been with him for years. I'd say Don Hughes had been with him for since the early years of the vice presidency, Rosemary Woods when he was in Congress, and others, and so on. And he just, uh, Herb Klein, who, who had been his press secretary early on. He pushed away. And they, they, they were just sort of uh, neutered and, and pushed away. And I think Nixon, Nixon was freer to sort, of, to sort of let loose his worst side. Um, he, uh, uh, Ray Price, Raymond K. Price, who was, a, who was the editorial page editor of the Herald Tribune, he he wrote um, he he was sort of Nixon's good good speechwriter, sort of the, the good side or the generous side, and and Pat Buchanan, uh, who was who came in who had been who had been who worked as a conservative editorial writer in St. Louis and, had, and was sort of the other side. Pat Buchanan wrote the speech, probably Nixon's most notorious speech, the one the one that led to the before the invasion of Cambodia, the, the help. The, the, the helpless giant speech which led, which then, which led to riots on the campuses, the, the shootings at Kent State. Julie and David weren't able to even attend their own graduations after that. It was a terrible, terrible thing. And, and Ray Price was, was the other side. Ray Price said he had this dark side and this light side. And Ray Price argued that the light side ultimately won out, but, but, if you, but at the end of that presidency, the dark side was clearly, was clearly, was clearly, was, was clearly ascendant. And, uh, and with that happy note, we're going to open the okay. floor to questions. Okay. <laughs> what was uh, taken away from the tape the part that was erased, oh. and then I've heard some things in the ether that maybe Watergate, uh, there were some things about the uh, Kennedy assassination, then people, that's why he, wa uh, partly why he wanted uh, to break in to Watergate. Timothy's heard many more of the tapes than I have, but I, doesn't, I, I don't think there's well, anything to that. Well, uh, we don't know what's on the 18 and a half minute. Uh, we don't, well, I'll tell you that the National Archives, well, first of all, courts tried to figure out what was on the uh, what was on that that piece of tape, long piece of tape, and they analyzed it. Uh, this is the Judge Sirica, John Sirica court, and they analyzed it and they and they determined that uh, that it had been there was a deliberate erasure, and there were six to eight examples of uh, of an erasure. Somebody had started erasing it and then stopped and started and started and started and stopped. Um, the uh, National Archives, I think about 10 years ago, before my time there, but it, it analyzed the tape and used forensic, audio forensics, and tried to find um, some bits of, 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 of sound on the edges, because when you erase something in those old tapes, you couldn't get everything. Well, sadly, there, there was nothing on the edges. And then, just recently, there was an, uh, another attempt to look at it and, and, and to evaluate it. Nothing came of it. In fact, there was also an attempt to make sense out of uh, Haldeman. Um, Bob Haldeman was the president's chief of staff. When he met with the president, he'd have a, a yellow legal pad, and he would note um, decisions, uh, action items, things that he'd have to do. He did not write transcripts of their conversations. And he did note the nature of their conversation uh, that day. So we know from his notes that they talked about Watergate. We know that the, that the period from the, 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 that what's gone from the tape is almost exactly covering the period when they were discussing Watergate. So if it was accidental, it's a brilliant accident. Mm -hmm. Now, um, but from the Haldeman notes, and Haldeman's notes were never uh, designed to be transcripts, we have just a sense of Nixon discussing how to fight back how to go after them. Let's, you know, basically defend with a good offense. That's all we have. So the tape itself has provided no new clues. Haldeman's notes are rather limited, and the National Archives did a, a spectral analysis to see if they could see whether there had been another page that had been ripped out and thrown away, and they were looking for indentations. Yeah, you're smiling. Look, you know, people actually try to figure out if they're conspiracies, really. And uh, nothing. I was going to uh, say, you, you don't think there was anything deeply sinister beyond what we already know is sinister going on, right? Uh, uh, well, <laughs> what, well, I'll tell you my, I mean, I've said, I'll tell you that what, what struck me as really interesting about that tape was um, how it had been handled. Uh, it was my job at the National Archives at the library. I wrote the, the new Watergate Gallery at the library, and I looked into this. I had a, an interest in tapes. I had run a project analyzing tapes before anyway, presidential tapes. And it turned out that these tapes had gone to, this particular tape 
which is from, if I'm not mistaken, June 20th, uh, 1972, the first time that Haldeman and Nixon are talking to each other in the White House after Watergate. Now, they've talked to each other before because they were in Florida, but this is their first time next to a taping system. Anyway, that tape went to uh, Camp David, where it was worked on by the president's secretary, Rosemary Woods, and it also went to Key Biscayne. So there are a number of people who could have um, who could have erased it, not simply Richard Nixon. And frankly, my sense is that the person who might have done it is the one really deniable person in the, in the Nixon entourage, and that's B.B. Rebozo, because it went to Florida. What was it doing in Florida? But there's no evidence. There's no secret evidence. I never saw any, and whatever evidence I saw, I made sure was, to the extent I could, made sure it was made available, and there's nothing more. I wish there were more on the 18F minute gap, so I've just given you speculation, but it's just mine. It's probably safe to say that Americans' collective faith in government is a lot lower today than it was, say, 50 years ago, and obviously a lot of things have happened in that period, the Vietnam War, the Iraq War, 9-11, Katrina, et cetera. How much of that loss of faith in government do you ascribe to Watergate? I think that, well, first of all, you've got the credibility gap. That whole concept is a product not of the Nixon administration, but of the Johnson administration. That's when it comes in. It, and, and, and we have a, a man named uh, Robert McNamara to thank for that. And that's because what you had were you, you had these, these White House briefings, or actually uh, Pentagon briefings, about the situation in the war. And then you had people like Halberstam and other fine journalists who were actually on the ground finding out that, no, in fact, the war was not going that way. So the public, which I'm not saying the public was naive, but the public was used to a certain level of honesty. And they were seeing this divergence, and that was the gap. And that, that's really Johnson. Now, of course, the, the loss of, of both Kennedys and of Martin Luther King will shock people about, about the nature of our political system. But I think it's, it's, and that I know is part of it, but I think it's, water, it's, it's Vietnam and then it's, and it's Watergate. And I mean, look, uh, President Nixon, in 1973, makes a statement where he denies lots of things. A year later, evidence comes out, some of which he provides to the courts, which contradicts com- almost incompletely what he wrote in 1973. So it didn't even take a year. So as a, as a citizen, you had to wonder, I was lied to about, water, about Vietnam by Johnson and McNamara, and now I'm lied to about our electoral process and our government's commitment to privacy by President Nixon. So both a Democrat and a Republican has lied to me. Why should I believe anybody? Uh, I was at an event a year and a half ago with Carl Bernstein and by satellite link uh, Bob Woodward, and they talked, I think Bernstein was particularly exercised about the, the lifelong, after he left the White House, effort by Nixon to eradicate the list of things that he did. I was just curious about your perspectives on how good a job, as, as historians, Mr. Frank and, and writers, how good a job he did in, in making us forget the things he did. At his funeral, you know, Bill, Bill Clinton sort of, some, sort of said, let's not judge, let's become a time where we won't judge his entire presidency by this one thing. He was in public life for 50 years. And I just think, I think we're sort of taking a broader view of Nixon now. I mean, there was just, this was, this, the war was Johnson's war. He, he, he had told C.L. Salzburger, the U.S. can't fold. He was a cold warrior. I think it's, it, was a ter- it was a great tragedy. 58,000 Americans died in that war, and, and 18,000 of them died under while Nixon was president, and they didn't have to. Uh, we were st- stuck there. And, uh, but, I don't, but, and, but I don't think that, I don't think, I think he, he became a valuable counselor in some ways. I think, uh, and, and I think, uh, and I think people, at the same time, people will, will never forget what he, what he did. He was, um, so I don't think eradicate is the right word, but, he, but people began to sort of, I think we're going to begin to see him, for all of his personal quirks and, and, and for all the darkness in him, the, the farther away we get from him, the, 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 sort of the, the, the sort of the wider the perspective and the, the more interesting view we'll have of him, I hope. I disagree slightly um, with Jeff. I think there was an effort made to alter public perception. Uh, I do believe that Richard Nixon had a lot to offer uh, presidents uh, on foreign policy. Uh, one of the things that I have to say about Richard Nixon is he believed in, in, in um, the big play, or you'd call it as a Hail Mary pass. He was willing to take huge risks. Uh, not all presidents are willing to do that. I mean, China was a huge risk. Uh, detente with the Soviet Union, the way he did it, was a risk. So 
So he had a lot to offer presidents. But I do believe, I know this for a fact, that it was an effort uh, to make it difficult for the tapes to become available. R Richard, Nixon's, Richard Nixon, by the way, was totally in his right to assume that the tapes belonged to him because every president until Richard Nixon owned their papers. The National Archives didn't know that there were, Nix that there were Kennedy tapes until, until the Nixon tapes were released and the Kennedy family then told the National Archives, you know that safe in the warehouse to which we only have keys? There are tapes in there. The National Archives didn't know. And so President Kennedy and President Johnson and President Nixon assumed that the tapes they were making would belong to them. Well, when President Nixon cut a deal with the overseer of the National Archives to try to get back the tapes so he could destroy them within five years, Congress intervened and passed a special law. The Nixon Library is the only library governed by one law, it's Presidential Recordings and Materials Preservation Act of 1974. That law stipulated, first of all, that, you, that we members of the public had, had, to, had the right to get any information about abuse of government power, but also protected the tapes. And then President Nixon, former now, President Nixon then sued. And there was a long struggle. It took years, and in fact, only now are the tapes coming out. I mean, I, when I was there, we, we released about 630 hours. There's another big uh, dump of important material coming out, I hope, this year. Um, it's taken years for this stuff to come out, and that's because of Richard Nixon and, 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 his, and his estate. So they did not want these tapes to come out. And the same with the papers. The, Nixon sued the National Archives, and it dragged out. In fact, when I was there, there were 35,000 pages that I found in the vault that I got out that had been put in there because the National Archives was afraid of what Richard Nixon and others' reaction would be. If they, and, uh, it didn't change the world. There's some rather really good materials. They're out now. They're on the web or they're freely available. But the fact of the matter is that Richard Nixon put enormous pressure, both legal and political, on the National Archives. And that dragged out this process. And I will say one thing, which is if you care about access to government information, then support the... Na I don't work for them anymore, so I can... Support the National Archives. You know, it has very little public support or very little political support. So that's, it's really important because Richard Nixon's not the only president to put pressure on the National Archives to make things difficult to it. To By the way, I, say, I, I totally agree with him. I, I wasn't talking about the unending attempt to suppress all of this. I'm talking about, about the, the PR campaign to sort, of, to sort of make it look better in the public, public eye. And by the way, as for China, I, just, I, I do want to say that, that we should really give Nixon, that's one thing I want to say nice about Nixon, um, you know, people, people say Henry, Henry Kissinger was an old European guy, or Dr. Kissinger. Hen, Nixon was, a, was, was from the West Coast. He looked East. He traveled through Asia when, when, he was, when he first took office. This was Nixon. This was all Nixon. My name is Lawrence Reed. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to read my question as we're on television. I want to get it correct. This is directed towards both of you. Um, you mentioned Nixon's relationship with E. Frederick Morrow. Perhaps more relevant to Nixon's legacy in view of racial politics was his relationship with the other two African Americans who served in Congress during his term, which were um, William Dawson and Adam Clayton Powell, who uh, Adam Clayton Powell actually championed Nixon in the black community during his tenure as vice president. And according to an autobiography by Rabb, uh, Powell was snubbed in favor of Moore when an opportunity arose for a black delegate to travel with Nixon's administration. How do you feel, that was a consistent pattern when, and it was, it was very selective. Although all three of those congressmen were Democrats um, and obviously would have not been the first choice just for that reason on its own, uh, there was a very selective policy. I mean, it was a, something of the period and the time and the racial politics. But uh, to, for it to have been limited in a circumstance like that to be able to say, well, we'll select one of these three congressmen and the other two will be decisively turned away. How do you feel like something like that affects the legacy of a man who already has kind of a, he has a, a very divided, depending on how you can judge his relationship with King, and then some of the other things that he did. Well, uh, this, was, this was the Eisenhower administration. Eisenhower had no 
Eisenhower was, had no sympathy for the Brown versus Board of Education decision. For example, he thought it was a terribly, terribly disruptive to the society. And he, when, when, when something, when there was a crisis, such as the Little Rock crisis, Eisenhower did follow the law. He followed the Constitution. He said, and he did what a five-star general does. He said an overwhelming force. But he hated, he hated this whole, this whole thing. So, and he didn't, and he particularly didn't like Adam Clayton Powell, who he thought was kind of a demagogue. So I'm not sure. So I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what, 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 what Nixon, what Nixon's role, role in this is. Nixon, Nixon was, you know, Nixon was, was very friendly with Morrow because they, they actually kind of liked each other. And that was, that was, a, that was a personal thing. And so well, the issue was, was that he was actually influenced by advisors to him in order to be able to make uh, a decisive decision not to include him. So what I'm saying yeah, I'm, is, is that, does that, do you feel as though Nixon's personal politics towards African Americans during his administration were negatively affected by advisors that surrounded him during that administration. I don't, I don't think so. I mean, you're, you're talking about President Nixon, not Vice President Nixon. No, I'm talking about, yes, I'm talking about President Nixon, but I'm yeah. talking about an event that happened during his vice presidential I'm, I'm not. I'm not aware of, of, of one, one, one or the other. I'm sorry. I'm just, uh... I think that uh, Richard Nixon's uh, attitude towards African Americans was shaped by some assumptions he had about uh, genetics and race, which he speaks of in, in, on the tapes. And uh, so I think, I think that uh, it's really useful for someone who wants to understand Richard Nixon's view of the world to look at, at, at how he thinks about race and how he applies a, um, his own kind of genetics to this, it's a, it's a, it's a, I, I found it an, um, an unpleasant I think, approach. I, I think that's right. I think Nixon's private attitudes were not, were not, were, were unpleasant. But I think that, I, but I think he tried. I think in this case, I think he really supported the aspirations of African Americans as much as he could. I mean, I think he, I think he wanted, he wanted African Americans to succeed in society. But I think he, 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 he assumed a ceiling. But if he did, I, I think he did, and I think, I think the tapes show that, but I think if he did, he never, never expressed it publicly. I think it may have shaped his welfare policy. I think I, think I, I came to that conclusion uh, listening to the tapes and, and seeing some of his correspondence with Daniel Patrick Moynihan. And I, I think that may have shaped, I think one way of looking at his welfare policy is that way. My name is Velma Montoya, and... I'm wondering what you discovered about the relationship between Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan during those years. There wasn't much of one. I mean, Rick, I mean, they they were they were friendly enough. Nixon Nixon didn't have much respect for Reagan. As a, uh, he, he didn't think he was all that all that bright. Um, I, I uh, so they, they were they were they were kind of. I don't think I don't think he did much. I think he I think he was probably more involved in in other administrations. I had I had a personal. I had a personal experience with Nixon when I was at the Washington Post. I was in the Outlook section, and uh, this is when, when, when the first George Bush was president, and, and, we, and we were saying, we, you know, there was feeling, well, maybe he, he's not quite getting the arrival of Yeltsin as opposed to Gorbachev. And I said, well, why don't we get Richard Nixon to write a piece for us? And they said, oh, he'll never write for the Washington Post. I said, well, let's give it a try. So we called Saddle River, and by gosh... He wrote a piece, and it was a pretty good one. Uh, and I, I came in, and I said, we said, we need some work. And we called his office the next morning, and I forget who I spoke to. It was probably, probably Kathy O'Connor or something. Well, the, he said he was up all night working on it. And, and, I, and uh, so we, we ran it, and apparently I was told that it had some influence, that Brent Scowcroft liked the piece, gave it to President Bush, and it had some effect on his, uh, his, his policy. So, uh, so that's just... That just um, During the time of the Watergate hearings and some of the information that came out as far as Nixon... Uh, burglarizing Ellsberg's office and some of the other things that uh, I don't know if made it into the bill of impeachment or not. But when we look forward, when we go into the future, the Patriot Act, subsequent legislation, how much of what Nixon got in trouble f for now would be legal? Not? <laughs> no, burglary, burglary no, still burglary, no, no. <laughs> See, now let's, uh, I'll tell you what we know about President Nixon and, and the Ellsberg burglary, which happened not very far from here. Um, uh, what we know is that uh, the, the president was told by John Ehrlichman, who was his chief domestic advisor, but also who was the titular head of something called the Plumbers, which was a group that was supposed to staunch leaks, plumbers, like, uh, that there had been an 
an operation in Los Angeles. And that, and it was part of their, it was part of what the plumbers were doing, and that it, it had aborted. And the president was told, and this, and the timing of this call correlates exactly with the operation here. Now, the president himself was, uh, was not sure whether he had ever authorized this because he asked Bud Croke, who was the, um, the action officer, whether he had authorized it. Um, um, later, he said that whether or not he had authorized it, he still thought it was right for national security reasons because he thought that there was a conspiracy leaking information. The Patriot Act does not allow the U.S. government to break into a place without a warrant. The area where the Patriot Act and some of what Richard Nixon did um, um, overlaps is the question of warrantless wiretapping. And, that's, and there, this was a period when it was legal to, to wiretap for national security purposes without a warrant. But, but it had to be for national security purposes. And the debate over Richard Nixon's wiretapping was, did he do this for national security reasons or for political reasons? Because the people he was wiretapping were journalists and also people who used to be on his staff. Uh, and so, but the wire, warrantless wiretapping of the Patriot era is a reminder of that era when not just Richard Nixon, but other presidents could wiretap without warrants. And by the way, as a result of the Nixon wiretaps, some call them Kissinger wiretaps, but anyway, the national security wiretaps of the Nixon era, Congress and President Ford's and then President Carter signed bills which gave us more privacy. And it's the Patriot Act that undermined some of the privacy that was a post-Watergate phenomenon. So for a lot of people, it looked like we were going back to that period that we really didn't really like before Watergate when presidents could do this willy-nilly. I just want to say, by the way, that one of the, one of the things I was trying to do in this book was not to focus on Watergate because it's been everybody, that, that, that territory is, has, is is owned by so many, so many reporters and writers and so on. And I thought that, let's say Nixon was in public life for 50 years in this country, and, and, I, just, and I thought there were so many other interesting things to, to look at, and, uh, and you would see glimmers of it. So I just, so I... And you proved that. <laughs> but, uh, so Watergate, and I say, I do get into Watergate, but I just think I, there, there's no, there, was no point to, there was no point to kicking him around on that one more time. I, that wasn't my, that wasn't the my goal. The one thing that's interesting is, is this the same man? That's the question. It's a very interesting question. And, 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 and here's, the, and here's yeah. the problem, which is that we have, we have almost everything this man did when he was in the White House from 1971, February 71, until July of 73. Imagine your life under that kind of microscope. There's nothing like that for him as vice president. And they're the only bits and pieces of his diary that we have are those which appeared in his memoirs. Yeah. So the inner Nixon of the 50s is not accessible in the materials that we have. This diary stuff actually is, a lot of, a lot of it is available if you sort of go into the yellow pads and find the notes he took. And the, you mean the notes of the meetings? Maybe. Notes of meetings and also notes of what after, there was a particularly interesting section period where, when, when Eisenhower was trying to get him off the ticket in 1956. He said, you know, why don't you, Dick, why don't you take a cabinet post, become Secretary of Defense? And this went on for months. Nixon, Nixon really thought that th really this was even in some ways much harder than the, than the whole fund crisis. And Nixon was writing notes to himself and what he would, how he would, how he would announce that he was going to voluntarily get off the ticket and these just agonizing, I'll do it for the good of the country. It was just terribly, terribly, uh, ter terribly uh, uh, revealing of a, of a man who was tormented by insecurity and, 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 uh, and, and, and not knowing, not knowing what, what, what lay next for him and so on. And you could find that, you could find, and so you could find, you could find all these sort of notes and these little, th yeah, meetings and the way he presented himself. He gave a talk to the CIA at once and just sort of discussing the job of a vice president. And he clearly, you could sort of see the way he saw himself as a, 
as a man, he saw himself as a man who was a particularly special job because he, he was everywhere. He was, the, he was in the legislative branch and he was in the executive branch and he was in the cabinet. So in a way, his job was so important. Anyway, so it was very interesting things you could find if you could just keep, keep looking, but, but it's, it's in there. It's, you've got, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of files. How many billions of papers are in the library? Well, they said 42 million pages. <laughs> I didn't look but at, I, didn't I, didn't, count I didn't get through all of them. <laughs> Hi, uh, Daniel Worley. Um, I think this is really fascinating, especially I've always thought it's interesting Nixon's relationship with his predecessors, both Eisenhower and Johnson, and how he applied the lessons of those administrations. And I'm curious, in my experience of going through Nixon's papers, it seems that first year he was already applying the sort of permanent campaign model in which he was letting politics inform policy. And I'm curious how you see his relationship with the Eisenhower years in terms of domestic policy and, and how that informed Eisenhower's politics. If you see any of the lessons learned from those Eisenhower years being applied in the Nixon administration as president. But yes, I mean, he was definitely in full campaign mode when he was president, no question about it. And he had learned lessons. We haven't mentioned Murray Chotner tonight. And, and uh, who was a very interesting, very interesting man. He was Murray, he, Murray Chotten was the man who, co who coached, him, coached him when he first ran for Congress in 1946, really coached him in 1950 when he ran, and, and, sort, of, and sort of was always, and sort of, sort, of, sort of stood by his side during the fund crisis. And, and Murray Chotten would give a course in, in election politics, and, his, and it was sort of, he was sort of the Karl Rove of his era. He said, he said you have to deflate your opponent. And Nixon, Nixon learned that lesson. And in a way, that would, that would answer Tim's thing. Was that dark side there? Yeah, that part of Nixon was there early. The, attacks, the attack side of him wasn't just doing Eisenhower's bidding. It was, it was something he had learned from Murray Chotner and believed in, believed in deeply. But I'm not quite sure the, about the domestic policy, and Eisenhower, I'm not quite sure what, what you meant with that. But, uh, well, I guess, I guess I would say it seemed from the very first month of Nixon's presidency that he was already applying these lessons of domestic policy could determine his political future. Oh, and I was curious if, sure. if you saw him learning lessons from how Eisenhower reacted to things like Little Rock and these things to how to get out ahead of these things. Yeah, I mean, Eisenhower was, was Eisenhower, I don't think Eisenhower really thought politically about these things. He just thought, what he, Eisenhower really, it, Something like Little Rock, Eisenhower just did what he knew he had to do. But he would say, I think he wrote to someone, this is what I've been dreading all along from the Brown decision. He didn't, but he... There's one foreign policy lesson <clears throat> I think he learned. Uh, Richard Nixon, and I'm not, in your book you suggest that he may have felt that way at the time, but it's clear later, Richard Nixon came to think that Dwight Eisenhower handled the Suez crisis badly. And uh, long story short, uh, the Israelis, the uh, French, and the British have a, now this is a, a conspiracy, have a secret conspiracy to attack Egypt. A genuine conspiracy. Yeah, genuine, to get rid of Nasser. Uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser, president of Egypt. The United States decides not to back Great Britain and France. In fact, puts real pressure on the British to get out of this. Richard Nixon in later years thought it was a mistake that the United States... He thought it was a mistake then, but didn't say anything. Yeah. Well, we don't... Uh, yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. however, however you look at it, he, he certainly, he certainly says, thought, he, certainly, he was certainly very, very open. Yeah. He starts talking yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he saw this as a mistake that, that Eisenhower had made. Um, and uh, so I, I think that, that there were negative lessons he yeah. felt he learned from Eisenhower. He also said that Eisenhower changed his mind. And I, don't, I, never found, I found no evidence that Eisenhower ever changed his mind on Suez. Eisenhower saw it as a... He was taking a, a, a virtuous anti-colonialist colonialist stand there, and I, don't, I saw no evidence that Eisenhower ever, ever regretted what he'd done. I will say that uh, in, you'll see in, in Jeff's book that Richard Nixon uh, was very interested in, in African leaders and leaders in the 50s. By the time he's president, he doesn't think, he actually says Africa's going nowhere. He's not that interested. So he also changes his mind on certain things. Last, uh, one last thing, and, 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 and I want, you to tell us, because I, I think it's the most interesting part of, of the Nixon story. Do you see seeds in the 50s of, he, of the decision to change American policy towards China 20 years later? Or is that something else he had to learn? I, I, see, I think what he always had was a fascination with that part of the world. And that was in the 50s. As I, say, as I said earlier, I think growing up on the West Coast as a California kid, the East really meant a lot to him. So I think there was something in him always and I think, but no, I mean, nothing, nothing, I mean, he, he never really said it. It wasn't until he wrote this piece for Foreign Affairs that actually Ray Price drafted for him, which I guess was published in 67, that no, we can't keep China isolated. But that was the first time he went public with it. This was a year before he ran, ran for, the, for the presidency. 
But I, 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 I don't know. I think there was something in him on this because, because of he, and uh, because, so, of, because of his fascination with, with Asia and the East. So he was evolving too. He was evolving. Not always in a good way, but he was always evolving. <laughs> <laughs> with that, I believe. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.